Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to the State of Amorica podcast. I am David, and I have my good buddy Ian on the other line with me. Ian, how are you? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I am great. I can't complain. Great feedback on our 1972 episode. People seem to enjoy it. Yes, really appreciate people checking that one out, having an open mind in some cases, and uh, also appreciate people really heavily participating in the uh, giveaway that we had for a couple of copies of the album. Yeah, so we're, if you, you've you been notified probably by now, and uh, we'll get those copies out to you. And for our members of Patreon, we're going to give away a few things on that. Patreon is doing well. I want to thank everybody for joining. We haven't lost anybody yet, which is really cool. Other than that, kind of a slow week, I guess. Chris was on the Eddie Trunk show. He mentioned, I think there's two more shows with Charlie that they're going to do. And I guess kind of the big news that came out of it, no Southern Harmony tour but a big box set i almost prefer it that way when you start to get involved in you know doing a tour on the anniversary of every past album it becomes a little bit too uh nostalgia based yeah and he did reiterate you know said they have a plan for the new music and so um i think after red rocks they're gonna go into the studio and record he did say the red rock shows would not be shake your money maker Yes, which that should be cool, and uh, you know, I wish I could make it out that way for for that show. It seems like it's going to be something special. Always kind of something special at Red Rocks. The venue itself is just a, a special kind of place. Yeah, that you know, we we want to get a group up at some point to go out there and, and go see some shows. But I think one of the things that that place does, I think it just draws special shows out of people. Yeah, it's uh, the vibe is uh, unmistakable. It would seem. We've got to get out there. Ian Jeff Morton said he'd host us, so that's fine. Jeff Morton is a okay in my book. Yeah, and Jeff Morton has some podcasts coming out in the future about the Rolling Stones, and Ian and I are going to do uh, the Let It Bleed album. Yes, looking forward to doing that. As you know, it's seldom I'm invited to come along on these podcast ventures with you, so I get uh, I get a little uh, tizzy from it, you know? So Ian acts to li- act, likes to act like he's never invited, but I'm the one that engages everybody on Twitter, and that's usually where it happens. That's true. That's true. You handle Facebook. That's true. Which is for old people at this point. Uh, you know, it's my speed. What can I tell you? <laughs> We're not getting on TikTok, though. No, I can't even uh, fathom that. But uh, uh-huh. more power so, to those TikTok people, you know? Yeah. Other than that, um, we have Stephen Hyden back this week, which is uh, somebody we wanted to have back on again. We had him back when the Steve Gorman book came out that he helped organize and write. We talk about in the interview tremendous Radiohead book last year focused on Kid A and a really good Pearl Jam book is on its way in September. Yes, and uh, it was a great interview. Stephen now holds the distinction of being our uh, first celebrity guest to uh, make a return visit, and we're pleased that he did. He's uh, always a great conversation with that guy. He's just become like my favorite music critic. I like it that he's a fan. He is, but he's not a fan in that it stops him from being objective about things, but he also doesn't take himself too seriously like a lot of uh, critics tend to do. I mean, we we discussed a little bit 
of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with him, and that's I didn't get a chance to mention it in the conversation, but I think that's a large part of the problem with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is some of the board takes themselves a little too seriously. Yeah, the gatekeepers. But that's a whole other conversation to be had with that. We ought to do an episode where we debate if the Crows got in, who actually goes in. Ooh, that would be a touchy one. <laughs> no, let's do it now. you got to put Jeff Cece in. He was on the biggest selling album. Yeah. you got to put Mark and Eddie in. Mm-hmm. Then after that's where it gets iffy. I would say that Sven has to be in. Sven was, yeah, yeah. was there from the beginning, uh, even if he wasn't in the band. You know, and um, he's been with them a long, long time. I mean, it's hard. Where do you make the cutoff? You know, I mean, Luther contributed to two very excellent mm-hmm. studio records and toured with them quite a bit. You know, I mean, yeah. when you get into people like I, I, as much as I love the guy, I would understand why Rob Cloris wouldn't be in. He was in them with them for a very limited time. Yeah. You know, as was Jackie Green, you know, people like that. But, you know, some of the long-term people really need to be in. Who do you think should induct them? Hmm. That's a good question. I bet Chris would like for Bob Weir to do it. That'd be great. I, I don't know necessarily who has a very, very strong tie to them. I mean, ultimately, I would think like maybe like George Trikulius could do it, you know? Yeah, but the Hall wants a name. I don't know, man. That's a good question. David Letterman's a huge fan of the band. That is true. Probably Letterman would be a good induct. Although he did, he inducted Pearl Jam, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Letterman would be good. I mean, they've influenced a lot of bands. Yeah. You know? Definitely influenced a lot of bands. Well, anyway, enough about the Black Crows and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We're really excited to, to give you this Steve Hyde interview. So here he is, Mr. Steve Hyde. <laughs> All right, Ian, as we know, uh, we have a, uh, a bevy of Steve's that's been, that's been on this podcast. I think we've had like five. Anyway, Steve Hyden was one of our, our first big guests after we had uh, Steve Gorman on. Uh, you may know him from IndyCast, 36 from The Vault. He wrote a book on Radiohead last year that we're going to get to that was my favorite rock book of the year. And he's got a one coming out on Pearl Jam that I am just dying to get a hold of. And we've pre-ordered several copies. We're going to give those out. When that book comes out, and we're going to give out a uh, Radiohead book and a Twilight of the Gods book with this episode. So uh, we're spreading the Stephen Hyden love. Mr. Hyden, welcome back. Thank you. Wow, that's so nice. Thank you for doing that and you know sending out books to people. It's it's great. This is like a this is like a one podcast sales drive. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> I tell you, Stephen, when uh, we last spoke to you on here, and the Radiohead Kid A book was forthcoming. I was so excited about that book, and and it definitely paid off. That was uh, for me also one of the one of the greatest reads of 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 the year for me. I wanted to ask you what was the drive behind wanting to write that book? Is Kid A a, a particularly uh, favorite album for you? Yeah, I mean, I love Kid A. I love Radiohead. It's funny because you know I've been asked this a lot when people ask me about that book, like, oh, Kid A is obviously your favorite Radiohead record, and it's actually not. Like, OK Computer would be my number one. And that has a lot to do with just when that came out, you know, I was 19 when that dropped and it was one of those records that defined my music taste for a a year or two after it came out. Like when that album came out, it felt like, Oh, this is my generation's dark side of the moon 
right. or Pet Sounds or, you know, it just felt like a, like a classic record. But in terms of like an album that's fun to write a book about, I, I Kid A to me just seemed like there was so many different strands that you could use that album as a starting point to, to talk about just because it came out in 2000, you know, it's a turn of the century. Uh, there were so many things going on in culture at the, at the time and, and with the internet and in music. I think my thought process going into that book was, you know, I was, I was looking ahead to the year 2020 and looking at that as like, okay, so we're, you know, about 20% into this new century. So it seemed like a natural time to look back and, and to take stock at what had happened in the first two decades uh, of the 21st century. And I, I was just thinking about albums that for me define the times, you know, like if you were going to pick a piece of art that represents like what it was like to live in, you know, the first two decades of the 21st century, like, what would you pick? And for me, it was Kid A. So that was the beginning of it. And as you know, like you, you, you've, you've read that book. It, it talks about Kid A, but it also just talks about other things too. It talks about Radiohead's career. It talks about the culture, like other things that were going on at the time. So it just seemed like a really kind of rich subject matter where you could use it as an excuse to write about this great record, but also like write about all, like a lot of other interesting things at the same time. Is the Pearl Jam book going to follow kind of the same format? Yeah. I mean, I think with Pearl Jam, the impetus of that book was to look at them as one of the only bands of their generation that has survived. When you look at 90s bands, so many of them self-destructed. Or if they did carry on, it was in some compromised form you know, and we could talk about the black crows in that, in that context. And they just seem like a really interesting band to talk about, like just the changes to, to rock music during the time of their existence and why they were the, one of the only bands that managed to navigate like a lot of the pitfalls that like, that their contemporaries couldn't avoid. You know, because like that, that to me was the really interesting thing about Pearl Jam. You know, I write about this in the introduction of my book that, you know, like if you study the arcs, the career arcs of different rock bands, you notice certain patterns, you know, like if you look at the Beatles and like how they came together and they had their peak and then they broke up. It's like, well, there's like a lot of bands that kind of have that same arc. Like they come together, they have a peak and then they break up. Or you look at a band like the Rolling Stones, like how they've just found a way to continue for, you know, 60 years now. And they've done it because they just keep touring even when people die in that band. You know, there's there's a real sort of like ruthlessness to the Rolling <laughs> Stones that keeps them afloat. And then you have a band like, you know, like the Grateful Dead who survives because you know, they were able to build a career through touring and, and, and sort of going against the grain of like the recorded music industry and not having hit singles for the most part, not really caring about albums, but really focusing on playing creative set lists and the grassroots and focusing on that and how a lot of bands emulated that. And like Pearl Jam in a lot of ways is like an amalgam of like all these different things, like how, 
they were so hugely popular early on in their career to a degree that I don't think people really appreciate now. I think that's been forgotten, like how just humongous Pearl Jam was from like, say, 91 to 96, where they could put out a record and it would sell like a million copies in one week. Like and, they no, do, and no videos. No videos. Like they were doing like Taylor Swift numbers in the 90s. And then they purposely scaled back and became more of like a Grateful Dead type band, you know, and still continue to be hugely successful. Like if you look at them now, like they're touring right now in 2022, they're so, you know, they're packing arenas still, you know, even though they have like almost no media profile at all, you know, and they haven't had a hit single in a long time and they haven't really tried to have a hit single in a long time. Um, it's built entirely on their reputation as a live band. And there's just so many unique aspects to like how they built their career. I just thought it was really fascinating. So that was really the entry point with them, you know, wanting to figure out like, how did they do this? And, and, and thinking about that and kind of digging into the minutia, you know, of all their many different phases. I mean, I think they were ultimately so successful because they remained so fan friendly. I think that was a large part of it. I mean, they, they do things like even just as recently as a couple of nights ago, they, you know, Matt Cameron's out with COVID. So they had the original drummer from the first album, Dave Cruzen fill in. Right. They just, they do things consistently like that, that draw in the fans and, and do really cool things for them. And I, I think that helps their longevity a lot. Yeah. I mean, Pearl Jam, I think has hit upon this mix of, consistency like where if you go to see them you know they're going to be good and you know that they're going to play a certain number of songs that you want to hear and yet at the same time there's a spontaneity to their live shows that for a band of their stature is pretty unique like really it is only the jam world that is as spontaneous as pearl jam although obviously if you go into the jam world it's much more spontaneous but it's like they just find that sort of happy medium between those two worlds where, you know, like a lot of bands, I think of their, of, of, of their vintage, you know, they're sort of churning out like the same stuff all the time. It's the same show and maybe it gets a little boring and maybe that's why they fade away. But at the same time, you know, if they were too radical and again, I'll bring up the black crows like <laughs> as an example of this, you know, if they're so anti-crowd-pleasing, then you sort of marginalize yourself in that way. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of things about them that's so unique where they could, like Pearl Jam to me, they're like, they can be U2 and the Grateful Dead simultaneously, mm. you know, in a weird way. And it's like, how can you find two more diametrically opposed bands than those two? And yet Pearl Jam is able to thread that needle. So, you know, to me like that, if I had to give the elevator pitch for the book, like that's what it's about, like figuring out, like, how did they do that? I think one of the, I think they have something in common with REM in that they all seem to respect and like each other and give each other space. I mean, Eddie does his solo stuff. Mike McCready's got like his UFO cover band. They just seem to respect one another. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what was so smart about REM is that they were students of other bands, like especially Peter Buck and Peter Buck, I believe was the one who really pushed the idea that they should all share songwriting credits. 
and and split the royalties because he knew that that's the number one thing that broke up bands in the past you know those arguments over money and i think with pearl jam there's a similar aspect of like rock scholarship in that band where they all are such music fans and they know where other bands have triumphed and failed and they've studied that and they've learned from that and they've avoided a lot of those mistakes and they've even avoided the mistakes that their contemporaries have made again i mean and other people have made this comment but like in terms of like the seattle generation you know pearl jam is the only one that's still going like in terms of like the original lineup i guess allison change is still going with the new lead singer but it really is striking how many 90s rock stars are no longer here yeah. uh, it's really sad and like no one in pearl jam has died even the people that have been kicked out like they haven't died you know <laughs> uh but like you you go see them and not only you know have they not died but like they they do seem like you say like to have this really good spirit to what they're doing and I mean, this has turned into a controversial story. I don't know if you saw that Rolling Stone story about Taylor Hawkins. Just read it this week. and saw where Matt Cameron came out a few minutes ago and said his words were taken out of context. Yeah, which, you know, I don't know about that. I mean, I mean, the the I guess the controversial quote in there would be about Taylor going to Dave Grohl and saying, I can't tour anymore. Like, that's like the money quote, which is something that I think Chad Smith also supports in that story. I, I believe that he kind of says something similar and it's hard for me to feel like, I don't know how you take that out of context. I guess the context would be all the nice things that Matt Cameron said, but I mean, I don't, I don't want to speculate on what was going on in the food fighters or anything like that, but I'll just say that in Pearl jam, it seems like the priority is, the health and well-being of the band members and they've taken really good care of that they don't push themselves too hard that also seems true of radiohead you know like radiohead seems like you know we're not gonna we're gonna tour when we feel like it and oh if tom york and johnny greenwood want to do a band that's cool if ed o'brien wants to do a solo record that's cool maybe we'll do a record together you know sometime maybe we won't you know, they're not on that treadmill of like just trying to kind of keep it going. It seems like that's like a pretty healthy way to operate if you're a band that's been around for 30 or 40 years. I think that's, that's ultimately the the ultimately the the bands that are most successful are the ones that kind of do it that way and the ones that have the most longevity. Yeah. Yeah. And even like, you know, a band like Fish, for instance, they seem to have it together too. They tour every year but they're only doing like 30 shows a year. You know, it's like not strenuous. And most and, of them are destination shows, you know, two, two or three nights in a row in one place. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. Or they're going a summer tour and it's like, they're going to each make, you know, several million dollars from those shows. It's going to be fun. No one's going to get burned out. And then you go home to your family you can do your own thing and you're going to make all the money that you need for that year from like two months of work. Like right. who wouldn't want that life? That seems <laughs> great. I mean, to go back to the black crows here, if we want to tie it back to that, I remember always just saying that to Steve, I'm like, why can't you guys just do that? Like where you just tour every other year, make a bunch of money 
because people are going to want to see this band. And that seems like a great life. Like, why wouldn't you do that? It's like you're and you sound good. I remember seeing the, the Black Crows in the early 2010s. They sounded great. That just seemed like they were set up to like just be on the summer tour circuit and it would be great. You know, it's like I go see Cheap Trick every couple of years. They're always amazing. I'm always happy to pay money to see them. I don't know. And not that that was Steve's choice, but it, it just seems like such a waste. It seemed like they were set up for that, really, because Chris was doing the CRB and Rich was doing his his solo thing. And and they would do that for a bit and then they would get back and do a Black Crows tour. And then they would go back to their solo projects. It seems like it's something that could have easily worked out. It's so logical that the Black Crows would never do it. <laughs> you know, that it, it was just too logical for them to do it, I think. All right, Stephen, before we get to Southern Harmony, I've got something to tell you. You have turned me in to one of the world's biggest war on drugs fans. Oh, yes. I have everything on vinyl. I'm going to see them in New Orleans for the first time in two weeks. Oh, hell yeah. And uh, it's a small theater, actually, like 1,500 people. It's going to be. I saw, I saw Noel Gallagher there. It's, it's really cool. You're speaking my language with these <laughs> war on drugs and Noel Gallagher references. Thank so you. I think the most exciting moment in music last year was around the two minute mark in old skin when the band kicks in. Yes. I, yes. I just like, I find myself going back on, on my phone and just hitting 15 seconds back, 15 seconds back. And I'm the, I'm the most excited about the buildup on, uh, for under the pressure. I mean, under the pressure is always like the emotional high point. It's there. My morning song. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know if you've seen that video on YouTube of them playing at some European festival, where it's like a 13 minute video and they really focus in on Charlie Hall, the drummer. Cause Charlie Hall is like the animal of that band, like animal in terms of like the Muppet show. Cause he's <laughs> like the most animated dude. And he's like wearing kimonos on stage. And he, and, and during under the pressure, I mean, the, the greatest part of that song is the breakdown, like where they're just, you know, getting ready to build back up and go into the, you know, the triumphant conclusion. You know, and I'm always like, and I've said this to Adam, I'm like, just do that for 10 minutes, you know, and this is like maybe the jam band fan to me, but I'm like, just stretch that out. Cause I'm always just like, you haven't milked this enough. Like as much as I love every live version of under the pressure, I'm always just like, I'll just milk this more. <laughs> I just like want like more noodling on guitar. I want more tension and just like Charlie, you know, like, you know, do it like riding the cymbals and being like, okay, here we go. We're going to get some rising action here. I'm excited for you, dude. Like that's going to be a great show. And that's a great size venue to see them because they don't play rooms that size. I don't think. My, my favorite video of them so far was at Madison square garden this year when they played under the pressure. And when they, you know, when they're coming out of the break down and Charlie really starts speeding up on the, on the hi hat, they, it was just a spotlight on him and yeah. he's got his head back and you can just tell he's, you know, into the moment. I also like to look, Oh, there's a, I don't know if you see it. There's a lot of audience, reactions the people videotaping oh, yeah. other people you know when it and there's this one he's kind of this overweight guy and i mean he's hammered and his friend's hammered and his other friend is just standing there like this and he's just like man i can't believe you're not getting into this you know <laughs> yeah there's always like one dude who's like i'm not impressed you know like i'm not impressed by anything and you're just like get the fuck out of here man like you're killing the vibe for everybody no like it's 
it's funny you mentioned that Madison Square Garden show because I was supposed to go to that. I was going to do a, I wrote a story about their early winter tour, but I was going to go see them at Madison Square Garden because I was like a big show. And then there was like a huge snowstorm that day and like a bunch of flights got canceled. So I wasn't able to go and it was like a real bummer. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Madison Square Garden. It's like an amazing place to see a show. I was like really excited to see the war on drugs there, but I don't know. Nature conspired against me. Coincidentally, I saw Radiohead there. So yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It was on the Hail to the Thief tour. That's a good thing to drop on us right now. (laughs) Hail to the Thief era, Madison Square Garden Radiohead show. Hell yeah. All right. So last week was the 30th anniversary of the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, an album that debuted at number one in yeah. 1992 at a time when, you know, you had Pearl Jam dominating the charts, Metallica, Guns. You had a lot of big rock bands, and, and they wound their way through it to get to number one. Uh, it's my favorite album of all time. I absolutely adore it. I, I think it's kind of, in my opinion, it's kind of my generation, and you, I think you and I are within a year of each other. To me, I view it almost like Exile on Main Street. It's a it's a full it's a full album. You listen to it sequentially. You don't skip anything. From a music critic's point of view, I know you like the Crows, obviously, and 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 you're more than an average fan. What do you think the legacy of that album is? I don't think it gets mentioned enough. I know Matt Penfield's a huge fan of it, but other than that, you don't hear a lot of people like you really praising it. Well, it's funny because you're mentioning Pearl Jam, and they were just starting to blow up, like when this album went to number one. It was really the summer of 92 when they really, I think, became ascendant because you had the single soundtrack starting to blow up like at the end of the summer of 92. You had Temple of the Dog, like Hunger Strike, that really became a hit in the summer. You had Lollapalooza of 92, which was Soundgarden and Pearl Jam became big. And then, of course, like the Jeremy video was like really starting to blow up that summer. So like there was like this confluence of different things that came together around that time where Pearl Jam, I feel like in a way, it's funny talking about Pearl Jam and and the Black Crows together because in a way I almost feel like Pearl Jam like bigfooted the Black Crows a little bit because I think that they both occupied a similar lane, which is funny because like you go on certain Black Crows message boards and they act like, Pearl Jam is like the opposite of like what the Black Crows are. Whereas I think that they had like a lot of the same influences. And certainly, you know, Brendan O'Brien was in the Black Crows camp on the first two records. Part of the reason why Pearl Jam started working with Brendan O'Brien on their second record versus was because Stone Gossard in particular like loved Southern Harmony. Like he loved the sound of that record. And, uh, you know, Brendan O'Brien, he didn't produce that record. He was the engineer of that record. And of course, Brendan O'Brien also engineered Blood Sugar Sex Magic. You know, like he was working on like these classic early 90s records as an engineer before he became a producer uh, in his own right. But, you know, I think the Black Crows... I mean, like this record is obvious. It's also my, it's not my favorite record of all time, but it's like my favorite Black Crows record for sure. I think it's the album like where the songwriting and the playing and the vibe all are just perfectly in sync. And having Mark Ford and Eddie Harsh in the fold 
after those guys had toured so much in support of Shake Your Money Maker, you know, and then they go in the studio and they make essentially, a, I mean, it's a, it's a live record, basically. Mm. Like I was texting with Steve Gorman a little bit before this show. I told him that I was coming on this podcast. I'm like, give me some tidbits. And, you know, he was talking about like how like, my morning song was like a first take. Wow. Wow. You know, song and how, you know, like sometimes salvation, I think was also a first take and like how there's like a, there's like a screw up at the end, but like, it, it just works perfectly because they had just been on the road for so long. And that's a fact. That's like another parallel. If I could say between the black Rose and Pearl jam, because I think Pearl jam on their first record, were similar to the black crows in that like they were both bands that like were not fully formed when they made their debuts. Yes. You know, they were still in the process of kind of discovering who they were. And it's so funny because in both cases, the debuts are the still like the biggest albums that they ever made, but it was really touring after those records, like where they discovered who they were and really became like these indestructible live units you know and it's like on the second record like where it really starts to pay off musically i think you know i think in the case of the black crows there's great songs on that record no doubt but it really is about the chemistry of the band that's the power of that record like you hear sting me and it's like you hear eddie's just brilliant keyboard playing lace through there there's nothing like that on shake your money maker for all the attributes of shake your money maker in terms of the songwriting it has nothing close to that in terms of the musicianship or the vibe of it and then of course like the brilliant mark ford guitar playing you know i it really I, it's like to me like i was listening to that record getting ready to talk to you guys about it. it it really is just like it's like getting off on the band and i guess like that's similar i guess you were saying this is like exile on main street for the nineties, it's a similar thing where I think there's great songs on exile, but it's about the sound of that record. It's about the vibe of that record. It's about like hearing these musicians in the same room, just playing together. That really sells it. You know, like you could say in a way that like a song, like she talks to angels is like a better sort of pop song than anything on southern harmony but like doesn't have the vibe of southern harmony doesn't have like the the groove of it so that's why i love that record above anything else and you have amorica where it's almost like amorica's brilliant but that's like more vibe and it's almost like the songwriting is like not quite as good but like the playing is so good so that's like even more about the playing less about the songwriting but like southern harmony it's just like oh it's like the goldilocks it's like the perfect you you got great songs you got great vibe at the same time in your opinion given the fact that southern harmony is such a complete work like that why do you think it is that it doesn't get mentioned in the same conversations as some of the the more classic rock records of the time and and even prior you know it just seems odd to me you know i'm gonna blame the band for that i mean there's there's other factors that come into play, but I think you got to start with the band themselves that if you look at the great bands of all time, what do they do? They put out archival releases, you know, they, they celebrate their own history. You know, they do things to remind people that, Hey, we did great things in the past. 
And th- these things should be honored. And like, you should honor them and we honor them too. We appreciate them. The black girls don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they put out, you know, Chris and Rich just put out like a 1972 EP. Yes. Why not celebrate? I mean, I guess they did the shake your moneymaker tour, but I don't know. Like to me, that wasn't the same. I just don't feel like this band honors their own legacy. Like I've talked about this with Steve a lot where I'm like, you guys should be putting out box sets of your live shit from the nineties. And, you know, I say this to Steve, like he has any control over it. He doesn't, (laughs) but somebody should. Chris confirmed on Eddie trunk yesterday that there is going to be a massive Southern harmony box set. And he said, there's a ton of stuff that they're going to put in it, but I'm like you. And I've said this from day one on this podcast, put out archival releases. Don't put them on streaming services, make people have to buy the physical medium or or pay, you know, to download it, make it special. You know, they could start with that highs, the moon tour that they toured on this, which the footage from that stuff is just, I, I dare anybody to watch the opening of no speak, no slave and say, that's not rock and roll, but. Oh my God. Yeah, like what is that? It's like somewhere in Europe. I'm trying to remember like where that is. Rotterdam. It's unbelievable. It's just it's it's the curtain comes down and it's just like, yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I, I mean that's great to hear. Like I I'm excited to see like a big box set for Southern Harmony, and hopefully maybe this is the beginning of them starting to do that. I mean, because the thing is with the Black Crows is that in their time, like they were never part of a scene either. I mean, and they were sort of like willfully, I think, hostile to their contemporaries in a lot of ways. They were more open to uh, older musicians for the most part. But like anyone that was, you know, sort of going on in the 90s, they they weren't really uh, in tune with them. And I think that when music history is written, you know, people tend to look at scenes, they look at movements, and like, if you don't fit in any of those things, you fall through the cracks. And I mm. think that's true of the Black Crows. I mean, the Black Crows, and I've said this before, you know, like they predate Nirvana in terms of being like a gritty rock band that sold a lot of records. Right. Like I really feel, and they predate Pearl Jam too. Like I, and again, I feel like the Black Crows and Pearl Jam actually have like a lot of parallels in terms of like their first two records. Yes. That are underappreciated. I think that like what the Black Crows did is very similar to what Pearl Jam did. It's just that Pearl Jam had a more contemporary image that I think allowed them to break out of a certain ghetto that like the Black Crows couldn't get out of. You Mm -hmm. know, they got very locked into this sort of 70s retro thing, which I think did their music a disservice a little bit because it it made people think that it was just a looking backward type thing. And I think there was more to it than that. I, I, and I think that maybe that there were things just in terms of like how they marketed themselves or like how the record label marketed them that maybe would have broken them out of it. Cause I think again, musically, they're not that different from like a band like Pearl Jam. I think Pearl Jam was like a pretty classic rock band. You know, they had a lot of the same influences. You listen to a song like Dissident from Versus, that sounds like a Black Crow song. You know, there's a bunch of songs on that second Pearl Jam record that to me sound like Black Crow songs. But, you know, no one thought that Pearl Jam was like a 70s revival band in the way that the Black Crows were described as. 
So that seemed kind of limiting to them too, you know, and just like their bad attitude, <laughs> you know, which is like one of the things we love about the black crows. Like I love their bad attitude, but like, you know, they shot themselves in the foot over and over again, obviously uh, in the nineties, in terms of like bridge, you know, building bridges with other bands that might've helped them. I think where they weren't so alone, you right. know, because they just seem so alone now. It's like, it's all up to them. I mean, if Chris and Rich are going to do more archival stuff, I actually think that that's great. I, I hope they do that because their, their manager said they had several box sets in the works. And you don't even have to do box sets. Just do like a live record. That's like, you know, kind of cheap. Do the high, high as the moon tour from Houston. Yeah. You know? Professionally recorded. Yeah. You know, like a two disc thing or like a four sided vinyl, like that would be relatively affordable to people. You know, like where you don't have to spend a hundred hours on it, you know, where it could just be like an entry point. Right. Or someone who's never heard the band. Cause I, I do think that like for younger people, like the black crows aren't, aren't on the radar no. at all. No, they're not going to buy a hundred dollar box set, you know, by this band, they don't know. But if there's like a cool live record, that's like relatively affordable. I think that could do it, you know? And, and if you just pitched it as like, this is the Rolling Stones of the nineties, you know, and this is like a cheap entry point into this band. Cause I always feel like, you know, there's so many like jam band people like that don't know about the black crows. And I'm like, yeah, this is a band that jammed, but they also kicked ass. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the best of both worlds. Yeah. Right. So just like a live album. Yeah. Maybe it's high on Houston. Maybe it's that Rotterdam record. But I think it's like one, it's like a record like that, like from 92, 93. Right. Something like that. I think that could sell the newbies out there. Steven, let me ask you this. As a fan of the band and then subsequently working with Steve Gorman on, on the Hard to Handle book, doing that book, did that influence and change your opinion and the way you perceive the band at all? You know, it's funny. I mean, it probably changed how I feel about Chris and Rich just mm. as people, but like, it doesn't affect how I feel about the band. I mean, I was just in the Southern Harmony again, like an hour and a half ago. It's a great record. It doesn't yeah. make me like the music less at all. I think I've read enough rock biographies to feel like, all right, if you're going to read a book about a band and feel like, oh, it's, <laughs> is that going to be warts in this book? There's not going to be any like, flaws in this book. Then like, you're just that's on you like you're just naive yeah you know like when people read hard to handle and they're like well i didn't expect to be all this fighting and all this drama i'm like really you didn't <laughs> expect that you didn't you didn't expect any of that it's like just don't read a book then if, if that bothers you just listen to the records yeah i mean i have my personal feelings about chris and rich just i mean steve's my friend and i'm loyal to steve so i have my feelings about those guys but it's separate from how I feel about them as part of the black crows for sure. That's what I tell people all the time. Like I can separate people from the music. I mean, there's some, you know, some horrible, some horrible things have come out about a lot of people in the last couple of years. And I'm like, I'm still going to listen to the music. It's, you know, do I, do I quit watching Batman returns because Christian Bale's a jerk? Yeah. <laughs> or it's like, if you were good friends with Keith Richards, you probably wouldn't like Mick Jagger that much because you know? <laughs> Keith would probably be bitching about Mick Jagger all the time, but it's like, does that mean Mick Jagger sucks? No, of course not. You know? So I don't know. It's just, it's not like they murdered anybody. 
you know it's it it is garden variety rock star behavior so you know to me i feel like i can contextualize it that well, way as we as we kind of wrap it up i have a question for you put your uh music critic hat back on mm-hmm. do you think they at least deserve to be on the ballot for the rock and roll hall of fame you know it's so tricky with that because i mean i just wrote a piece about this recently about how the rock and roll hall of fame has this weird bias still about so much alternative and indie rock from the 80s and 90s like like bands that you would just assume would be in automatically like the replacements aren't in you know Husker Du's not in Black Flag isn't in the Minutemen aren't in the Pixies aren't in Sonic Youth isn't in yeah the Smiths aren't in you know there's so many great bands from the 80s that aren't in like so many great rock bands where you see like, oh, Carly Simon's getting in, you know, like uh, Dolly, Dolly Parton. Yeah. Which, well, I, Dolly Parton, I don't mind as much because Dolly Parton is like a larger than life legend. She's not rock and roll, but like she's influenced so many people in rock. Right. It doesn't, that doesn't bother me as much as like, and I'm not really bothered by it, but I'm like, I think I'd put the replacements in before Eurythmics, you know, personally, but you know, I don't, people have different tastes, I guess in terms of that in like Warren Zevon's not in that's like one of my big ones that he's not in it just makes me feel like I mean of course I'd want the Black Crows to get in but there's also like so many other bands that I'd want to get in too like Thin Lizzy's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that's unbelievable fucking Thin Lizzy Phil Lynott how more rock and roll can you be John Prine's not in the fucking rock and roll hall of fame? You know, like it, 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 it drives you insane. Like if you, just to think of all the people who aren't in and I'll throw the black crows on that pile too, but like, there's so many other people on the pile. Yeah. I don't know how I, I would prioritize like, like if they gave me the power to just put anyone I want in, I don't know how I would prioritize that, but <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a deeply flawed institution and it is maddening to me you know like because again i'm all for defining rock in a very broad way and like i'm i'm down for having rappers in i'm down for having dolly parton in but it does drive me crazy that there's so many great rock bands that aren't in and aren't even being considered and because i think that people assume that oh all the great rock bands are already in so now we can put in these other people it's like fucking no there's like so (laughs) many great rock bands that are not in you know and even like a band like rage against the machine who's like not my favorite band but i'm like there's no denying what they did and like tom morello is on the like nominating committee and you can't even get fucking rage against the machine in and he's on the nominating committee like how much do you hate rock music from the 80s and 90s that you don't even put that dude in i know it's maddening it is well, Stephen, uh, we appreciate you giving us a few minutes. Uh, we've been wanting to have you back on, and I thought Southern Harmony might be a, a good hook to to get you back on. We're pumped about the Pearl Jam book. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the support. I really appreciate it. That's really sweet of you guys to do a giveaway. That I, I love it. And yeah, let, hit me up. I'll get you guys a copy of the Pearl Jam book. Okay. Right, and there's a uh, awesome Pearl Jam podcast that Ian and I actually had the guys on here, State of Love and Trust. Oh, yeah. Uh, and those guys do a, a great a, a great job. I do want to tell everybody, 
listen to IndieCast. It's great. They had a great Hall of Fame discussion on the last episode. He and <laughs> he and his co-host Ian. Ian and uh, Thirty Six from the Vault. Go buy his books. They're all great. Twilight of the Gods is just. I've had so many people tell before I learned who you were. Tell me you got to read this book, and then oh man, by all means, in honor of Stephen and me, go buy all the War on Drugs albums and. <laughs> And, and go that's, see them. That's so nice, man. I'm I'm, I'm really touched. Thank you for that. All I, right, so we're gonna I put you on, we're gonna put you on the spot. Give us one Black Crow song to play out with, and then give us a song by any other artist to play us out. Oh man, what do I have to go with like a Southern Harmony song? Anything you want. Bad luck, blue eyes, goodbye. I was really feeling that song today when I was. Okay. Uh, and any other song? Yeah. I mean, well, let's go with the, uh, we're talking war on drugs. Let's go with the uh, old skin. Oh, All right. Oh, <laughs> uh, and people pay attention to when that, when the song kicks in, if that doesn't make the hair stand up on your arm, you need to go uh, get your pulse checked because <laughs> it is, uh, it's my favorite music moment of last year. Yes. Steven, thanks again, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Everybody will be back with you next week and stay tall.
Then watch it fade away Wrapped in our old Tired skin Peeling away All the flowers lately In our window in disarray Shadows are scattered like rings of gold And I'm watching the warm lights fade away Go now and love is leaving Like a fading dream Slip on. 